Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Hey, today we are continuing our series. We're walking through Philippians, finding joy right where you are. And that's really the whole, when you think Philippians, I want you to think having a Christ-centered, spirit-led, joy-filled life. And, and part of my methodology in just letting the text teach the ter- text takes us to kind of a passage today and kind of a chunk that, quite frankly, I, I was just sitting there thinking, I don't know that I've ever taught on this before. In 15 years of being a senior pastor, I don't know that I've ever actually tackled the topic we're gonna talk about today. And so we are, we're just kind of slowing down. We're still in Philippians chapter one. If you wanna open up your Bible there, we got it in first gear, four wheel drive low. We're just kind of grinding through the text. Are you guys ready today? All right, so I'm gonna, I probably should have worn like a sweater vest, little history professor in me. I have maps, but there's no quiz. There's no test at the end of all this. So we, Three of Philippians chapter one, and the conversation today centers around maybe one of the most famous verses out of Philippians. I don't know. I don't know if when you think Philippians, this could be one of the first few verses that kind of pop up in your mind. And this is a letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in the town of Philippi. And today we're going to talk a little bit about how he got there and in that story. So I've used every week Acts chapter 16 because Paul spent time in the city of Philippi and his first visit there is recorded in the book of Acts chapter 16. You don't necessarily need to turn there. I'm gonna read a little bit there. But in Acts chapter 16, he meets these folks in Philippi. Now, I'm gonna do my best to kind of keep geography to a minimum, but I want you to understand where things are. I talk about the ancient title, like the ancient Roman province of Asia, but I also put it in the modern context which is Turkey. When we think Asia, like even as Paul's reading in in Acts chapter 16, he has this vision and we were trying to do this in Asia. For years, I thought, why are they, I mean, are they going to China? That's really cool. Because when we think Asia, we think of the Asian continent. Well, in the Greek language, the word Asia actually means resurrection. But it also means sunrise, okay? So if I'm, in Greece, which Greece is the very southern part of Europe, I'm gonna put a map up, okay? So you see Athens, or if I'm at Athens or Sparta or whatever, and I'm looking to the east, and the sun comes up in the west. No, I'm just kidding. Sun comes up in the east. So if I'm, I'm, on, the, if I'm on the banks of the bottom of Greece, and I'm looking to the east, across the Aegean Sea, the land over there, that's actually the Roman province, Asia. It means the land of the sun rising, if you will. That's why the Greeks and the Romans called it that. It was because the sun came up from over there. It's not the Asian continent, if you will. So when you think, it's hard, but when you think Asia, I want you to think that's now pretty much modern day Turkey, okay? So Paul's in modern day Turkey. He's in the province of Asia and he wants to go north, but he keeps saying that the Holy Spirit wouldn't open that door. God leads through open doors and closed doors, okay? And, and God just kept saying, nope, I don't, I don't want you to do that. And then he has this dream, he kind of has this vision, if you will, that there was a man from Macedonia, okay? Well, that's Greece, man from just across the Aegean Sea. And so Paul has this dream that there's a man from Macedonia and saying, hey, come over here and help us, all right? So now for the first time, Paul and his companions, 
They cross the Aegean Sea, and you can see right there at the very top, he lands in Philippi. For the first time, the gospel is in a new continent. Instead of Asia Minor, which is where it mainly been in the Middle East, now the gospel has crossed the Aegean Sea. It's in the very southern part of the European continent. Now, I'm of German descent. My mom's mom spoke fluent German. Gary says that's why I'm stubborn, right? Okay. Because of this moment in Acts chapter 16, because Paul follows this dream and this vision that God gives him, and they cross the Aegean Sea, and now the gospel is on the European continent. Because of that, my German descendants heard the gospel. As a matter of fact, the gospel would stay with the Europeans, and it would come across on the Mayflower. And it would come across with the pilgrims, and that's how it came. And so God was going to get the gospel around the globe, but this moment in Scripture really ties to you and I's Christian heritage of what happens in Acts chapter 16. It's a really big deal in the course of history. So eventually Paul would find himself on kind of a highway, a well-traveled road called the Via Ignatia. okay? And so this was, was the second big Roman highway, if you will, that they built for two reasons. They built it for the purpose of military, like so they could move their military very, very quick. We have the same principles. If you stick into American history, that's why we actually have the interstate system. It was for national defense, that if we were attacked on the East Coast, troops that were in the middle of the country or the West Coast could easily get there through the interstate. Well, that's what this was. This was for the purpose of Rome being able to move their massive armies quickly but also it was to help travel. And so it was to help um, trade. So it started at a port that's now modern Albania, up there on, on the top left, okay? And it just kind of works its way through southern Greece. You'll see it goes through Thessalonica, it goes up and it comes through Philippi. So at some point, Paul's journey got him on this via Ignatia or Ignatian highway, if you will, and it took him through the town of Philippi. Acts chapter 16 talks about what goes on while he was there. We meet a New Testament character by the name of Lydia. She sold expensive material, if you will, okay? He also leads a Roman guard, and we believe his entire household to salvation in Jesus Christ, which, by the way, I think would be one of many Roman guards that Paul would lead to Christ. Paul would leave Philippi, and he would go on with his missions and his travels and eventually be arrested, and he would have two different stints or two different stays in Roman imprisonment, okay? And I understand they were two completely different experiences. His first time in Roman captivity or Roman imprisonment was under what we call house arrest, meaning he just had some freedoms, People could come see him. It, he was staying in a house that he had to pay for. So his companions and stuff, they had the money. But Paul rented the house. And so there was a Roman guard with him 24-7. But he wasn't chained to a wall. He wasn't in solitary confinement. Okay? He was just under house arrest with constant observation by Roman guards. His second imprisonment was not as pleasant. To be fair, we don't know a lot about his second imprisonment, but, it, but if you ever, like, Google Paul in prison, you'll pop up in Rome. There's actually this kind of dungeon 
prison cell thing with chains, and of course they've turned it into a spiritual shrine, and so on and so forth. But this is far worse than just being under house arrest. And a lot of Bible scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, to the Philippians, that he wrote this in his first imprisonment. But there's some challenges to that. There's some challenges to that line of thinking. Some think that actually it's potential this was three letters that was compiled together. I don't believe that. I believe it was one letter. Some people believe it was actually written in the second imprisonment where it was a far more brutal experience based upon his language, based upon where his headspace is at. And what we're reading today, kind of the place we're gonna jump into, is one of the leading causes why scholars think it's possible this was written in his second imprisonment. Does it matter? No, Paul was in prison, Paul's in chains, but it's just kind of fun to think about the context of, of what, what he's experiencing. So Philippians chapter one, we're gonna start in 12 and eventually land in 20, okay? Paul says in verse 12, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything, we're gonna talk about everything, that everything that has happened to me here has actually helped spread the gospel. I know it seems like I've had some bad luck. I know it seems like I've been through some stuff, but everything that's happened has actually served a purpose. It's helped spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, they know that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and they boldly speak God's message without fear. So the Roman Christians that were around him, he just trained them and taught them and gave them opportunity to go. So, okay, we're tempted to think that Paul is in prison is a bad thing. Oh, no. Oh, no. Satan won. Paul can no longer carry out the vision and mission of spreading the gospel. But Paul has a completely different outlook on his chains. This brings up the point that perspective will bring clarity to purpose. Depends on the perspective you have. You can choose to see it negative. Oh, no. My mission is over. Or you can choose to see that God leads through open doors and closed doors. Paul could have sat in the corner and it's over. God, I tried. Where were you when they arrested me? It's over now. But he didn't. Paul made the best of a bad situation. And he actually began to see his limitations as an opportunity for ministry. He began to see his chains as a chance to do something else. It's that same idea of God leads through open doors and closed doors. If God opens a door of opportunity, we wanna find the faith to step into it and believe God's leading us in a new direction. But sometimes there are doors that just absolutely close in our life. And I need to trust that maybe God is protecting me from something. So a couple of positive notes that Paul makes here in Philippians chapter one, verse 12, about his chains, about his imprisonment, okay? Because his perspective brought clarity to his purpose. The first thing I want you to note is that his prison... His chains allowed him to spread the gospel. He said, everyone, palace guard, every Roman prison guard that Paul met, he shared the gospel with. If you were assigned to Paul, he's gonna talk to you. Hey, how's it going? You doing all right? You married? None of your business. You got any kids? How many kids you got? You know, Paul's bold. Paul was gonna ask questions. He was gonna tell his story, how he used to persecute, try to kill and arrest Christians. Man, one day I was on this road to Damascus. You ever been to Damascus? I was going, it's crazy. Man, one day Jesus showed up to me, completely changed my 
The very man I was trying to get rid of, I was trying to stop his followers, I was trying to stop his movement, I'm wearing his chains today. That's why I'm here. I'm in this prison because of Jesus. Like I was trying to stop him, and now I'm trying to tell everybody I can about him. Jesus changed my life, buddy, and he can change yours too. Are you listening to me? Acts 16 tells us that one of the prison guards, we believe his whole house was saved because of Paul. So his chains present an opportunity for him to share the gospel. Number two, next man up, the sport term we use. Like when an athlete gets hurt, first string gets hurt, second string, next man up. You better be ready. This is your chance. If Paul is in prison, someone has to keep going with the gospel. Someone has to step up and fill his shoes. He said that. In that passage we just read, he's like, man, the people around here, they're more bold because I'm here and I'm just encouraging them and, and telling them, somebody has to carry on the mission, next person up. It's so easy to go, well, Paul's going on the mission trips. We'll just stay here and we'll pray for him. And no, 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 if Paul is in prison, somebody has got to step into those moments and somebody's got to step into those shoes. So it created incredible opportunities for others to minister and for others to go and take the gospel. Number three, it created space for Paul to write letters. It created space for Paul. Basically, it slowed him down. Paul was the kind of guy that would just go and go and go and go. He would go do whatever he was used to doing and whatever. Now he's in prison. He can't go nowhere. And he found a new contribution to the kingdom. When he was free, he could travel, go, speak, go, tell people all about Jesus. But when you're in chains, when you're under house arrest, or maybe you're in a horrible Roman jail cell, Paul had to redirect his energies to a new purpose. I can't go see him, so I'll write him a letter. And because Paul would write letters to individuals like Timothy and Titus and Philemon, and because Paul would write letters to Christians, like the Christians in Rome, or to churches, like to the church in Philippi or the church in Ephesus, because he was in chains, we have two-thirds of the New Testament. And the majority of his work teaches us about understanding salvation and understanding grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God slowed him down so he could record Christianity for generations to come. Chains might have been a temporary setback, but they made an eternal contribution. Amen? So, I want to read a passage. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to put it up on the screen out of 2 Corinthians. And this is one of the places where Paul talks about his life and what he'd been through and the challenges and adversity. And, and really, you could even read some spiritual warfare. The enemy wanted to do everything he could to stop Paul and his companions from spreading the gospel in the name of Jesus. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, listen, I've worked harder. I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number. Like they just beat him and lost count. I faced death again and again. Five different times, the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. The reason they gave him 39 is because in Jewish culture, they believed if they beat you 40 times, it would kill you. So five times they beat him, one time shy of kill him. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's not what you think that is. Trying to kill him with rocks, okay? Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and danger from rocks. 
I face danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I face danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. The moral of this passage, do not travel with Paul. I faced danger from men who claimed to be believers and turned out they were not. People that I thought were my friends. People I thought were coworkers. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty, often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Paul had a rough go of it. Sometimes that sounds like bad luck. Sometimes that sounds like the enemy trying to stop him. So let me set the scene. Having been shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead, beaten so many times they lost count, faced danger from robbers, been hungry, snake bit. He finds himself in a Roman prison in chains. And from that life of all those trials and all that difficult stuff, he writes these words. And this is what I want to drill into today. Philippians 1.20, he says, I fully expect and hope that I'll never be ashamed, but that I'll continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more faithful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Jesus, which would be far better for me, but for your sake, so I can keep encouraging and training and teaching coaching, it's better that I continue to live. And maybe you've heard this put in the older translations. Verse 21 says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul makes the case, man, I'm really torn here. And I go on to heaven to be with Jesus. That, that, that's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. But if I'm still here I'm still effective. I've still got breath in my lungs. I can still do things for the gospel. I don't know about you. I have never been torn. Do I want to die today or do I want to keep living? I just never have. Always wanted to keep living. Paul says in verse 23 that he's torn. I want to go be with Jesus, but I want to stay here and, and keep serving. Sometimes life brings us those tough, tough do I have chocolate chip cookies or do I have sugar cookies? Or both? Do I have mayonnaise on my hamburger or mustard? Both. Do I have fajitas or enchiladas for lunch? Do I lose the weight or eat the chocolate cake? Right? Life just gives us those, sometimes those choices. Sometimes the choices are harder because they have emotion attached to them. Maybe you've, had a dog that was an older dog. And now that dog just suffers in pain. I was talking to one of my pastor buddies the other day. In the next few weeks, I'm gonna have to make that decision. Do I continue to let them suffer? Or do we just put the dog to sleep? Maybe you've watched a loved one suffer. For when my dad was in his last few months of life, I remember seeing him sitting on the side of his bed and he was praying. Walked in and said, Dad, what are you doing? And I'm just praying God will be merciful. Is he praying for God to heal him? Or do you pray God would bring comfort? Mercy. 
Paul's wrestling in his writing, and it really gives us some really good theology. But don't miss this moment because there's some big life challenges here too. Like the first one is like Paul really lived. Not that he owned every toy kind of guy, not that he took all these fun, adventurous, pleasurable vacations, okay? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but Paul woke up every day with a life full of opportunity, full of purpose, even in prison. He found purpose in being there. And then he gives this long list of adventures, if you will. And I don't know about you, but being snake bitten is not on my list of things I want to do, right? Being beaten so many times they lost count, that's not the adventure I'm looking for. Being shipwrecked three times, I just wouldn't get on boats anymore. I'd be done. And all of the trials and all of the bad luck or spiritual warfare, Paul still really lived. And what would it be like to live with that kind of passion? There's something so empowering about a mission that brings people together, sharing a common goal, helping those who maybe can't help themselves. I've taken people to the dirt of third world countries. Yeah, well, they go on the trip, they know each other. Eh, you know, we've seen each other's church or whatever, just kind of acquainted. But then you go spend a week on a mission trip in the dirt of a third world country and there's no flushing toilets, brother. I'm gonna tell you, that's a whole nother level of bonding going on. But there's this crazy fulfillment that takes place. And Paul lived with that kind of passion and energy and drive in his life. Listen, there's, there's nothing wrong with going on a good vacation. Man, they're good for the soul. But when I give my whole life to the pursuit of pleasure, it comes up empty. If you don't believe me, I just encourage you to read in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's actually called a book of wisdom. King Solomon, who is King David's son. I believe Solomon took Israel to its greatest heights, to its most prosperity season, to its um, just, just amazing. People from all over the world came to see Israel in that time. And Solomon did his best to create heaven on earth. He pursued every pleasure that he could. And these were his words. That was all meaningless. Paul didn't live a meaningless life. Solomon had beautiful palaces and temple. Saul had bruises and trials. Yet Paul would tell you, man, I really live. Verse 21, for me, living means serving Christ. Living means living for Jesus, means taking up my cross, denying myself. That's where I find fulfillment in my life. Living really means living for Christ, but then dying is even better. So Paul really lived, but Paul also really longed for heaven. That seems weird. Dying is gain, dying is better. Don't lie, there's, there's days this whole world gets heavy. There's days it's like, Jesus, would you just come get us, please, before another SEC team wins a championship. We're tired of it, God. You know what I'm saying? Lord, just come have your way. Listen, Paul is not trying to quit. Paul's not trying to take an easy out. He's not romanticizing death. Paul's not, he's not suicidal here, okay? He's not wanting to just end it all. He just has a bigger perspective on life and eternity. Paul has a better grasp on heaven than what this world has to offer. Paul talks a lot in his writings about eternal life. Matter of fact, heaven and eternal life is mentioned over 700 times in scripture. And Paul's a lot of those. He talked a lot about living for eternity and living with Jesus and eternal glory and eternal life. A couple of examples, just 
scratches just the surface. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our present troubles are small and they won't last very long, but those chains, those problems, they produce for us a glory that vastly outweigh any trouble here and it produces a glory that will last forever, for eternity. Beyond when I'm dead in this life, that glory will still last forever. Romans 6.23, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is forever. It's eternal life in Christ our Lord. There are lots of others. And Paul is very set on his belief and his idea and his hope about heaven. There is more to this life than what this earth has to offer. This is not it. There is an eternity that comes next. So it begs the question this morning, what is heaven? Where is heaven? And some other big ideas, some big theological, theology things that I kind of want to jump into. Just a couple of thoughts on heaven. Number one, heaven is real. This is why it's really, really important. Listen to me, young people. There may come a day where you go to a college professor or something, and you're going to start chipping away at the authority of the Bible. This is why it's really important that we believe the Bible is true. Why we really important that the Bible is divinely inspired by God, meaning it was written at the hands of men, like Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, but God, through his spirit, was telling Moses what to write. David wrote some beautiful psalms. The Holy Spirit was telling him what to write. Solomon, when he wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the Holy Spirit was telling him what to write. When Paul was writing these letters, we believe they were divinely inspired that the Holy Spirit told him in his heart what to write. The Bible says heaven is real. I don't care what some TikToker or person out in the world, well, I don't know that I believe that. Hey, I'm just telling you, heaven is real. And so is hell. And it ain't a pretty picture. The Bible describes it as the deepest of depths, an eternal place of torment and torture. So heaven is real, and heaven is paradise. Let me tell you where we get this idea. When Jesus was on the cross, there were two men that were crucified with him. Both of them were criminals. They deserved their punishment and execution. One of them's mouthing a little bit, kind of like a Texas Longhorn fan, right? Okay. The other one actually speaks up and defends Jesus, and Jesus makes a very important, and it's very important to our theology, makes this statement to him. So Luke 23, 41, listen, we deserve to die for our crimes. This is the one that's defending Jesus. But this man, Jesus, hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, hey, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today. Everybody say today. Today. I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. In the Greek, which is the language this was written in the Greek, the word paradise is, is the same word they would use to describe the Garden of Eden. The garden, just a, just a place of, oh, it's just perfect, okay? It's also used to describe the top layer or the highest level of heaven. Get to that in just a moment, okay? But it's also just a place of pleasure. Paradise. You'll be with me today in just a place. But Jesus tells this criminal today, immediately, you will be with me in heaven. We're gonna come back to that. Finally, some thoughts about heaven. Jesus is preparing that for believers. So people who are in faith in Jesus Christ, he has gone there ahead of us to build a mansion and a place for us. John 14, three, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. 
there is more than enough room in my father's house and everybody said amen. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Like I'm going, I'm doing this for you. When everything is ready, I will come and I will get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Eternity, okay? So there's a little, Jesus is there preparing a place for you and I. So there's a little bit of debate about heaven, okay? Maybe you're aware of that, maybe you're not. That's what I'm saying. This is why just putting it in first gear, four-wheel drive, and just kind of slowing down and letting Scripture teach Scripture, I don't know that I've ever taught on the theology. I've talked about new heaven and new earth. I don't know that I've ever taught on really what we believe about the theology of heaven. This morning, I'm going to tell you what I believe and why I believe it, and maybe you believe this too, you just don't know why. Like you didn't know what the verses or the theological backing for that was. So I'm just going to kind of grind into that, okay? And again, this is one of those places where we don't have this just place in Scripture that says heaven is like this, 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 and this. We have to take a piece like what Jesus said there and what Paul said here and, oh, Jesus said this about it. And we kind of have to put this puzzle together to put together what we believe about heaven, okay? This is what I believe. I base it on Scripture, but... I believe that heaven is immediate for believers, Christians, when they die. So my dad died in 2003. We buried his body down at Daisy, where my whole family's from, south of McAllister, about 30 minutes. There's a Daisy Clayton exit. My dad's buried down there in the Mountain Home Cemetery. And I, from time to time, make it a habit, I just go over to the cemetery where my dad's buried. Specifically, you know, when he'd only been gone a year, two, three, four, five years, I would, I would go more frequently, okay? Well, it was deer season, and that means we Kellogg's all gather at Daisy, and Landon was with me, and my gosh, I think he was four years old or so, and I'd out and taken him on a Jeep ride or whatever, and so we ran over to the cemetery, and he'd never been there with me before. He'd never been there, and so his curious little mind's like, what is this place? And I got tears rolling down my face, and I said, well, buddy, this is where my dad, this is where Papa Ed is buried, and he'd get this the look on his face, and with both of his hands, he goes, this is heaven? Well, no, Daisy's a lot like heaven, but it, this, is, this, this is just where his old body is buried. So when we die, our soul is separated from our old body. A body can be buried, a body can be cremated, a body can be lost at sea. The Bible says it's just dust and ashes anyway. Be careful about dusting around your house. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But our soul, I believe, is immediately in heaven. And someday when Jesus comes back, our soul is going to be reunited with a perfect version of that physical body. But that day has yet to come. Okay? My dad's body, buried at Daisy. But I believe the day he died, his soul was immediately in heaven with Jesus and with other Christians that he knows and loves that had gone on before him. So here's what we run into. In classical Christian theology, it speaks of this idea called status intermedius, the Latin version of it, right? It means intermediate state. And so this is what gets a little bit wonky, all right? So my dad's intermediate state is his soul is separated from his physical body. His soul is in heaven, and I believe that immediately happened the day he died, okay? That someday they, the, the soul will be reunited with the physical body. Now, status immediate gets weird because some people believe 
in this term called soul sleep. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It's not a band out of the 90s or whatever. Maybe it is, I don't know. But this idea of soul sleep. And here's the idea, okay? This would be the idea that when my dad died, that his soul just went to sleep. It didn't immediately go to heaven. It just went to a place of rest. And then when Jesus comes back, his soul will awaken and his physical body will be joined, okay? And so in their thought about soul sleep, there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no grief. They just believe that when you die, your soul is just immediately, just simply asleep, okay? And then when the soul wakes up, it doesn't know it's been asleep. It doesn't know a difference. Like there's no time in that realm. And so like to the soul, I died. And then when I wake up, they believe that could have been hundreds of years, but it's just instant, okay? I don't believe in soul sleep because what Jesus said to that guy on the cross, right? Today, immediately, today, you will be with me in paradise, okay? So we have the idea of soul sleep. Then we also have the idea of purgatory. It's more than just a ski resort in Southern Colorado, right? This idea of purgatory is predominantly a Catholic idea, but there are some Protestant denominations that kind of lean this way and they have their version or their idea of purgatory. Purgatory is my understanding, okay, is a holding place for souls of the dead. For Christians who have died, it's, it's a holding place because their soul has not yet been purified enough for heaven, okay? So this is why some denominations or whatever, specifically Catholics, but there are some Protestant denominations that have been this way, that they will pray for the dead. They believe that there is a final purification that needs to take place before I can enter into the joy of heaven. I don't believe in purgatory based on Romans 5.1. Therefore, since I've been made right in God's sight by faith, not because of a holding pattern, not because of some place, no, because I've been made right in God's sight by faith, I'm at peace with God because of what Christ Jesus done on the cross, Okay? So I don't, my soul, if I'm in right standing with Jesus because of his sacrifice on the cross and I've asked him to forgive me and by Christ come into my life, begin to change me. If I'm a believer, I was made in right standing when I asked, okay? Not because somebody else is praying for me and I'm dead and not because I'm in some kind of honky-tonk purgatory or, or whatever, right? Okay. So I don't believe in soul sleep. I don't believe in purgatory, but you will in your conversations, in your study, you will bump into these theological ideas I want to put it in first gear, four-wheel drive, slow down, and help you understand why as Christians we believe what we believe about when we die, we're instantly or immediately with Jesus, okay? One other thought, heaven is not in its eternal state yet, okay? The book of Revelation describes a new heaven and a new earth that is to come, All right? So this heaven there's actually, remember I talked about the word paradise? It talked about the top layer of heaven. So this heaven, the heaven where my dad is at, okay, is what we believe to be the third heaven based upon a statement Paul made. He said, I don't know whether I was in body, I don't know whether I died or whatever, but I was caught up into the third heaven. Okay, so if there's three, what's one and two? Well, the first heaven, in the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth. He created the sun, the moon, the stars. The first heaven is the atmosphere. We can see that with our eyes. There's stars at Daisy, we have millions of stars. It's amazing, it's beautiful, it's incredible, right? So it's the thing we can see. So what's the second heaven? It's what Paul refers to as the unseen realm or the unseen world. It's a spiritual realm. I believe in angels. I believe the Bible, the Bible talks about angels. 
I believe in demons. Okay? They operate in a realm that you and I can't see with our natural. Just because I believe in angels, I had never seen one. Okay? And so the book of Job starts with Satan appearing before God in the third heaven. He's like, where have you been? He's like, oh, I've been roaming the earth. Where was he? He was roaming the earth in the second heaven in the unseen realm. Paul talks about the unseen. We fight a spiritual war in the unseen realm. So the first heaven's what we see with the stars, the sun, the moon, the sky. The second heaven's the unseen world where there's spiritual things going on. And the third throne or the third heaven is the throne room of God where he is seated. He's always been seated and Jesus is at his right hand. If that makes sense, say amen. Sometimes I miss my dad. And all my grandparents, they've all gone on. My friend James Wright, who died from COVID, and pastor friend Art Rogers, who died several years ago from cancer, and Bobby Morford, and Barbara Bond, and Howard Jackson, Merle Haggard. Okay, I'll keep it spiritual. Sometimes, like Paul, this idea of paradise is really appealing. And I think the point he's trying to say, listen, as Christians, we should not be afraid of death. This world is not my home. This time on earth is but a morning fog. It's but a mist. James 4.14 says, this life is but a vapor. So listen, if you live to be 70, Ricky, you just got one more year, buddy. I'm saying, you've lived a good life. If you live to be 80, you're one of the lucky ones. My dad wasn't that lucky. He died at 55. But that is nothing compared to the forever, the eternity that awaits us. So as Christians, we should not fear death. But we also have a lot to do in the meantime. I know the idea of forever, the idea of paradise, the idea of being with Jesus and being with my dad and my grandparents. I know that's appealing. There are days this old world gets heavy, but then... I wake up next to the beautiful bride that God gave me 21 years ago. She either smiles at me or hits me with a pillow because I turned the light on too early. That happens sometimes. Then I get to hug my daughter before she goes to sleep. Then I get to text my son about everything that's going on in his life and he loves to talk all things OSU. And by the way, Stillwater is a version of heaven on earth. I'm just saying, right? Then I walk to the, I mean, I get to church and I walk in my office and it's full of life and full of purpose and full of joy and opportunity. Yeah, I'm torn like Paul to live. Christ has so much for me to do, so much purpose and destiny and calling to fulfill and so many people to help. But man, to get to go to heaven where there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more time. I'll never be late again. For some, this life gets cut too short. Like my dad, like Howard, Barbara, long list of others, like Vern Smith. But the takeaway from Philippians chapter one shouldn't be about when I die but it really should be about how I live. And Paul really, really. There was a 17th century philosopher and mathematician by the name 
of Blaise Pascal. Just fun to say. And Blaise made a wager when it comes to God. It's known as Pascal's wager. Maybe you've heard this. But he considered all the options about God. Like if a person chose to believe in God and God is real, God's real and I've given my life to him, I gain everything. I gain eternity. I gain a peace. I gain a comforter. I gain a relationship with the creator. If God is real and I chose to believe in him, I've gained everything. But if a person chose to believe in God, but God's not real, I haven't really lost anything. I mean, maybe some Sunday mornings, but man, church people are awesome. Worship band's legit. The preaching, let's not talk about that. But, but if I've chosen to believe in God and God's not real, I'm not lost it. Or if a person chose not to believe in God and God's not real, I didn't lose anything there either. The last option. If a person chose to not believe in God and God is real, then they've lost everything. world is not our home. There's an eternity that awaits. We shouldn't fear death. We should also really, really live. I think the best living is in relationship with the God who made you and created you. I think Paul, I think Paul believed that. Paul lived that out. I didn't change. Hey, buddy. Yeah. Prison guard. Over here. You married? You got kids? Man, it's crazy. I used to hate Christians. I wanted to do everything I could to stop them. One day I was on my way to Damascus. You ever been there? No? Whew, not sure I want to go back. It's crazy. I was on my way to Damascus and Jesus showed up. Crazy, the very man I was trying to stop his mission, trying to stop his people, he showed up to me. Changed everything. These chains, these chains I'm wearing, they're for him. That's why I go and do what I do. That's why sometimes I push the envelope is because of Jesus. That day on the way to Damascus, he changed me. You know what, buddy? change you too. Paul would go on to say in many of those conversations, listen, the God of the universe, and he made the rules. Here's the deal. He says, if you mess up, if you sin, you make mistakes, there has to be punishment for that. And the wage of that sin is death, both in this life, but in the life to come. I don't know what you think about heaven or hell, but I'm gonna tell you, they're both real. But here's the deal. While I was a sinner, while I was stuck in this mess, while I was stuck in these mistakes, Christ came and shed his blood on the cross. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So because he shed his blood, I've got good news. When I was dead in my sin, Christ gave his life so that I could be made alive again. Man, I really want you to live like I live. Not in chains, but in love to God who created God never intended for salvation to be complicated. You listening to me? All he said 
is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead supernaturally, he overcame sin, death, and hell. If you believe that, then you can be saved. Saved from what? Sin? There's help. You don't have to live stuck in that mud and mess. I'm telling you, heaven and hell are real. And if you'll call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. You need to do that today. Have you ever given your full life? It's not complicated. I just want to lead you in a prayer. It's not a magic prayer. It's not like a chant or secret formula. It's just the best way I know how to confess and believe. What's important is that you say it with a sincerity. All across this room, nobody moving around. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just be real still for just a moment. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. If you need to be made right with God, I'm gonna lead you in this prayer. Or you can simply just surrender your life to Him. You ready? Just pray this. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today because I need you. Oh, I've made a lot of mistakes. I don't want that life anymore. Would you come into my life? Begin to change me. Make me a new person. I may not understand all of this. I'm taking a step of faith. Today, Jesus, I completely surrender my whole life. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.